Hey, welcome back to the show. This is Anthony Armanderis, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Sanchez. And our guest today is Mike Holzer, who's the director of UX at Google Payments. Mike, thanks for taking time out of your day, in, in the, I guess in the morning, almost the morning of your day to, to hang out with us. Appreciate you making the time. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is, it is kind of morning for me. Uh, my days tend to skew towards the uh, APAC time zone. So uh, my mornings are filled <laughs> with working out and getting ready for uh, a long evening. Oh, a lot more to talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you take a moment to introduce, introduce yourself? Tell us, tell us about who you are and what you do. Sure. I do run a Google uh, UX team. We work in, in the payment space which you know, at, at Google has a bit of a broad spectrum from uh, very enterprise-style experiences, how we help power the sort of checkout experiences for more complex customers like Google Cloud and AdWords and things like that, and then all the way to the consumer on you know, Google Pay as a consumer payments platform and helping people pay for things across the web and, uh, and apps. I've been at Google for eight and a half, nine years, somewhere in there. Uh, it is definitely longer than I intended to stay, <laughs> which, I, you know, I think is a is a kudos to Google as a company. It, it has been an absolutely mm. fantastic ride. Uh, it really is a great company to work for. Before that, I was uh, I, I worked in startups. And so, you know, I, I guess maybe maybe it'd be better if I zoom back and kind of start from the beginning and go through that arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if, if that would be yeah, interesting. This is, but, this is my favorite. This is my favorite part. I love I love the journey. Yeah. I and I, I don't think. Uh, I, at least for me, it feels like I had a weird journey. I don't know if others will be like, that's nothing. <laughs> and, you know, part of it started with, I had a really hard time with school. Mm. Sitting in a seat and hearing teachers lecture to me just wasn't really how I learned. It didn't resonate with me. I had a hard time sitting still. I'm much more of a do-to-learn sort of person. So uh, Hands-on, hands-on. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I, I think it was also the... You know, I won't lie. It was it was an immaturity phase. It was is this worth it? Am I really learning anything? I don't want to be here. You know, those kind of things. I got really lucky, and I got an internship at Bell Sports. And uh, back in the day, uh, they they made. I was in a bicycle helmet division, and bicycle mm-hmm. parts. And I I got absolutely lucky. I was studying mechanical engineering, so they kind of let me in the door to to hang around the shop and and help make prototypes. And that turned into a, a longer term job where I was doing model making for bicycle helmets and really learning about sort of industrial mm. design from the inside and some of these problems. To this day, I think that that highly impacted how I think about design. Uh, that's because, you know, when you're dealing with helmets, uh, it's material first, right? It has to be function before form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a failure is non-acceptable. <laughs> and as a st- I'm still a cyclist and I, you know, I still appreciate uh, well-designed helmets that, that save my my bucket when I fall. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because if a failure means somebody could potentially lose their life yeah. to a certain degree. Yep. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, we had all these uh, these helmet testers where we would drop the helmet from a certain height, and you know you'd have a a, a weight inside of it that reflected that of a head, and drop it in different directions to sort of figure out where the failure came from. Wow. Pass that stuff back to the industrial designers so they could reflect and and, and work with mechanical engineers. So it was kind of a you know, the version there was of, of maybe our version was the engineer was a mechanical engineer and the industrial designer was the designer. So sort of similar mm-hmm. to a, a developer and a designer in, in the digital space. Mm. But what it rooted me in was really caring about the material that I was building from. And so naturally I was, you know, wanted to go back to school. So tried to go back to school, tried to study sculpture because mechanical engineering wasn't hitting my creative. It wasn't scratching the creative itch I had. Then I got bored doing that, <laughs> dropped out again. <laughs> this time I dropped out because I got lucky and got a job at a landscape architecture firm. Okay, um, nice. And that was fun. I started off literally like designing irrigation systems for giant parks and houses and learning about horticulture and plants and, and uh, you know, all of these things. That You're just collecting. You're yeah. just collecting. You're just collecting all kinds of different perspectives. I think this is great. Yeah, and uh, I'd, I'd ask like it was on purpose, but, you know, I... I think I just got lucky despite all of the self-sabotage I was attempting to do at that time in my life. I think the fun part of the landscape... Wait, but wait, but wait. You said you said you got lucky getting an internship at Bell. You're getting lucky twice in a row. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I don't... I it, 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 it still, whatever, 20 years later, still still feels like a, a huge element of luck. I think a lot of, 
a lot of everyone's success is a lot of luck. Uh, I, do, I try not to attribute <laughs> too much of it to myself because it's just not true. I agree. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, how did how did I get here? It's so weird. Yeah. And it, also, like you know, you're you know, 20 plus years ago, like I don't really think many people are thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to design software, right? Or you know, like it maybe some people aren't even thinking about like websites and stuff like that. I'm kind of curious how you got connected or how you like how you learned about the internet and all the things the goings on there and then what what caused you to want to you know make that pivot yeah yeah i'll i'll tell you a, a funny part before all of this which is so i i actually grew up in silicon valley okay uh my dad was a software engineer at apple okay so when i left college and he was, you know, he wasn't on the front end building sort of what the, the kind of experiences that I work on today. He was more on the hardware side of hard drives and things like that. But, you know, as, as any angry 18-year-old does, I left school going, there's no way I'm doing that. There's no way I'm sitting behind a desk all day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> insert COVID, literally sitting behind desk for 12 hours a day. Oh, my Different God. Oh, you, my Dad. God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I know. He, he absolutely loves reminding me about that. But the, the connection actually came from this landscape architecture firm. So while I was working for them, the web started to take off. And they started to see the other firms around the city building websites. And they're like, we need a website. I'm like, eh, I'll figure it out. Come on. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I started exploring all of the, the photo software because obviously, you know, landscape architecture firm, they had a lot of pictures of the houses and things like that. And so, like, I could still remember the, golly, this image is huge. How am I going to get this to render on a website at a reasonable size? <laughs> you know, like literally having to like research image optimization to figure out how to compress an image so that it would still show up reasonably <laughs> on the web. You know, that was that. I was I was hooked as soon as I started playing with the web. I'm like, well, I can code and kind of scratch my technical itch and I can be creative and people can see it in like minutes. This is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I really like this. Mm-hmm. So that was the connection to, for, for me, and I and I haven't really looked back since. I, I, although I still I still dream about working on things that have a hardware component, even though I've never mm-hmm. really gone back and done that in my career. You know, whether it's in health or um, you know Chrome OS or you know some of these things that that where it's that blend of software and hardware where they really come together. I do still think that'd be a lot of fun. Have you all worked in those spaces? Yeah, I mean, mm. kind of. You know, like we we've been able to work on some like computer designs that involve like touch bar mm. experiences and or in car entertainment systems for automobiles like stuff like that not a mm. lot i mean i think prior to this year like like our the overlap we would have with hardware would often happen with one of our point of sale we did, used to do a lot of work in the yeah. point of sale space so like uh, that's where i was going with yeah. it yeah tap and pay and all in yep. point of sale systems and i was going to kind of ask you if working with the those technologies at least scratches the etch a little bit you know because there's you know all these uh, merchants use all these different systems yeah. and yeah it it doesn't um, <laughs> and the reason the reason it doesn't is cuz i actually don't get to get close to it um, mm. it's very much through sort of partnerships that that google does to enable these things and it's kind of it's up to the merchant and up to the point of sale manufacturer whether or not they want to en- enable google pay and whether or not that is attractive to the merchants that are trying to sale, sell to. So we're often not in the loop and don't really get to design those experiences. I think as evidenced by, uh, I'm, I, I think there's very few point of sale systems out there that make it clear how to use tap and pay. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> go watch yeah. people that register. It's still like, where do I tap this thing? Um, it's really funny because yeah. like, I, yeah. I only start, the first time that I ever tapped and paid with a credit card, was like a week or two ago, mm. like first time mm. ever. And I've never even, I always tell myself, well, I want to set up my digital wallet and in Google or, or Apple, or whatever, but I never, I've never even got up that over that hump to actually add a, add a card to a wallet. I don't know why. I just, mm-hmm. I know that it could, I know yeah. that it can make my life easier. I, I just don't know why I haven't actually done that. I have set it up. I've used it. I, this might be weird, but like tap to pay via my phone. I trust more than tap to pay via my card. Mm. Like, I don't know why it's such a strange thing to me, but I, I trust my device more than I do my other mm. device, my, my, the, the device in my wallet. Yeah. It, it is more secure. 
So mm -hmm. uh, whether or not that intuition came through or not, um, so mm -hmm. I, I think that that is that is one. You know, there's a couple advantages. One is definitely that is more secure. It, two is, you know, if you don't want to fumble through your wallet, it's typically a lot easier to fumble through cards that are you know, on a digital interface. And but I, I you know, COVID definitely a lot of people started doing a lot more tap and pay just because they were like the less things I touch the oh, yeah. better. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, t but, tell us a little bit about what you learned about that. You know, obviously some industries figured this stuff out faster than others. Restaurants obviously switched to digital menus and, you know, new ways of paying. Like I'm, I'm really uh, curious what, what are some of the interesting things you saw or things that you learned that were uh, interesting over this last really strange year and a half almost. It's a good question because I think, you know, living in the U.S., but having spent a lot of time in a lot of the APAC regions, Singapore, India, China, hmm. they are way ahead of us in terms of technology and adoption of a lot of these things. And, the you know, a lot of the, the commerce experience can be heavily done on your phone and digital very seamlessly in a lot of these other countries. China is like the, uh, the canonical one, right? Like there is, there are very few things you cannot accomplish in that country with, through WeChat. Yeah, it, yeah. it is, it is unbelievable. And, and, you know, when I first started on payments, I took a trip there and I'm like, okay, this is the future. This is literally the future and I'm living in it. <laughs> and then I came back to the U S and I'm like, this is embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> um, they have leapfrogged us in so many ways and just from a pure UX experience, it's, it's, they, they've done it. It's, it's elegant. It's useful. It's helpful. It's fast. It's, it's everything. And so I think what, what I've seen through COVID is a, the, the need for these digital experiences, like you mentioned the restaurant, which I think is really interesting because I had the same thing, which I think me and my entire team, as soon as there was any openings and you could go and have, have dinner, we were running through all of these these interactions and these these moments mm -hmm. in people's lives and thinking about them and the the reality is the infrastructure isn't there for the merchants and so at best mm. they were going to go to this digital menu but the payment they didn't have the point of sale system set up to do anything to connect yeah. the phone uh like the, a lot of them are wireless so they couldn't carry these around to a table mm -hmm. so you know everything where they were trying to avoid lines and avoid all these things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like i said you go to china there's a qr code it's in there you zap it you pay you walk out yeah, you're done. That's interesting. Yeah. And you can even order in a lot of these experiences. So, I, you know, I think it's very unfortunate that, and I, why I say unfortunate, is very unfortunate for a lot of the businesses that were trying to survive during these times that the technology wasn't there to support them. And yeah. uh, it could have been, but I think, you know, the timing just wasn't right. And that was hard to watch because I so, haven't seen it. Yeah, so, so now that we are here in 2021 having gone through a very kind of transformative period for and a hard learned transformative period of 2020 and there is more maybe more focus on digital payments like where does it where is it going is is some of this going to is it going to stick around is it going to are people going to still continue to put as much focus on the ability to provide this you know the types of services for the restaurants or small businesses like i'm thinking about like those 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 other businesses that they're the smaller businesses that are really trying to just survive yeah um, and enabling them to kind of preserve their livelihood yeah you know i, I mean I, I can't predict the future but i can tell you that we were building for that world before covid and yeah. all yeah. it did was put yeah. a giant exclamation point behind it for me um mm, i love that so I think how fast we get there is the hard part. It's really interesting to watch when industries, I find this in the U.S., where uh, when industries get big enough to sort of have mass distribution, like if you take point-of-sale systems, like a lot of the merchants have a point-of-sale system. Like it is a very saturated market, and, and most of them have a way of digitally accepting money. And so then to sort of uproot that and find a better way to do it and get all of these merchants to upgrade to a new system or to, you know, elevate their technology, that's a heavy lift. You know, if you're running a corner bodega, when mm -hmm, is it going to make mm -hmm. sense for you to do that? And what's the incentive right. to do it? I, mm -hmm. you know, that's non-trivial. Um, so how do we evolve as an industry, I think is, is going to be a, you know, a little bit of a steep hill. 
How much of it, I mean, going back to like the culture side, I'm, I'm really curious because like I've never been to Japan or China or India or any of those countries. I've, I've been to Europe and Scandinavia, so I'm used to like going to restaurants where they bring the handheld to you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and it's a personal transaction. You pay directly with the handheld, but I don't really know what, what the experiences are like in some of these other countries. And you say that we're really far behind. How do you, how could you quantify that? Like how far behind are we? Like, what would it take for us to get there? Is it, how much of, is it about the technology versus like cultural expectations Mm -hmm. or, 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 or certain cultural feelings about like what a bank means and like how they, how they pay for things? I think it's definitely both. Definitely technology and cultural. Even if we look at tap and pay, like I, th- I think your use case is perfect. You haven't quite found the, you haven't fu- you haven't intuited an ROI high enough for you to switch your behavior. Like shrug, <laughs> carry a wallet, pull out a card. Like what's the real advantage here? So what pushes you over that hump? And so I do think that's the um, that's the cultural part. Like if you take a country like India, which has been through this huge transformation that was really fast, it was it was government incentivized. So they introduced national payment rails, and then they incentivized merchants by uh, saying if if you use these rails under a certain amount, it's free. So now there's a cost mm-hmm. incentive for merchants to moving over this thing, mm-hmm, and then they mm-hmm. demonetized and they turned off a bunch of cash to sort of force actual consumers to change to this behavior. So the wow. government had a very heavy hand in sort of, let's wow. move to digital. So I, I think what's going to be interesting for me to, is Brazil is a really good example where they are developing national rails. How heavy-handed will the government play a role? I don't think they'll do something like demonetization in India. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, have, I have no insight one way or another, just to be clear. I'm just totally guessing. Um, <laughs> but it, like if they don't take that heavy a hand, then okay, then what's the ramp in a country like that that is going to do part of it and then what is the behavioral ramp up there i think you're at least from what i know and i admittedly i haven't been to brazil but at least what i've learned is that they're already ramping up a very similar behavior with regards to like qr code usage and things like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i think and i don't know how many of you like even in the u.s you're starting to see qr codes pop up and so you're starting to see it a little bit and that like that qr code i think Personally, I both love and hate them. I love them from a functional standpoint. I hate them from a design mm-hmm. aesthetic. Like they're they're just hideous. Like I've never <laughs> yeah. seen a good looking one. Um, and there's all these people that you know even uh, that that try to create their own version of one. And then and then it's you know it's not usable by other apps. And there's all kinds of downsides with that. But um, mm-hmm. they are an incredibly useful way. And so a lot of these countries are figuring out how to enable that. So you can imagine if if the U.S. started to actually adopt QR codes. There's a path there. There's a path to being able to connect to an app to make a payment. There's a path there to be able to connect. Because at that point, it knows the merchant, and it knows you, possibly knows location, knows all of these other things as soon as you can connect your mobile device to a merchant digitally. It gets really interesting. I don't, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not that savvy with politics, but I, w- I did watch the um, Biden's address to Congress, and there was something that he said in that that kind of I got reminded of when, when, I w- when you were talking and that was this concept, this this communication that he had that for the jobs of the future and moving forward in technology, that the the autocracies of the world like don't think that democracies can move fast enough because of how long it takes to build consensus and things like that. Is that? Mm. Do you think that that's has could have something to do with how like a country like China could rapidly you know move forward? Without, with fewer people needed to make make the decisions. Well, admittedly, I didn't watch Biden's address, oh. but from I, I would agree. <laughs> These are not the views of my employer. I'll start by saying that because I, I actually <laughs> don't know how that would go over. But I, I will say, like for my observation, I think that if you if you just like I think a really good example for me was watching from the outside these countries that where the government exhibits more control over the population, in a lot of cases, they were able to control COVID. Mm. And I, I, mm-hmm. I think that, so it kind of hints at the same thing, which is like, if, if a government wants a country to move in a certain direction and the people obey the, the desires of that government, you can get a lot of people to change a lot faster. 
you know, living in the U.S. for me, it's definitely something that I think about, which is if people look at what the CDC says and says, blah, 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 don't believe you, blah, 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 yeah. right? And we don't start to do these best practices to, to get the pandemic to calm down, then like, yeah, it's going to be a long time before we get through this. And, and I think that, can, that sort of thinking can be applied to a lot of things that would benefit us as a society at large. You know, it's just a, just a thought that I had. It seems like it takes forever to get anything done. <laughs> I concur. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I've never worked inside of a large tech company, so I'm just curious to learn from you what it's like building a team and a squad to build products like this and release them in different countries and how you think about the, the right sort of diverse perspectives on the design team and how you do research Mm-hmm. in a pandemic. Yeah, Re- research in a pandemic is non-trivial. I don't even have any uh, smart tricks because we had to do whatever we could virtually. We had to do whatever we could leveraging in-country research organizations and also be incredibly thoughtful about not putting them in danger too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were there was there was a decrease on how much we could engage with and learn from users. We tried to do as much as we could over GPC. You know, I think tactically speaking, that also puts us a little bit more at risk with being able to share things with users. Uh, once you're sharing it digitally, it becomes a lot more uh, screenshotable and, and mm-hmm, shareable mm-hmm. and things like that. So that definitely gives us pause. We did the best we could. The, our research team was incredibly creative to come up with different ideas and different thoughts and, and try to really get around the constraints. but. It was real. Yeah, yeah, you had a few questions in there, so uh, I'm curious which one, <laughs> which one would you prefer I talk about? I mean, one thing that I always just like to, you know, learn from different people is like how they build their teams. I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm just really I nerd out about that stuff all the time because I spend most of my my brain spends most of its time in like thinking about teams and if you know efficacy of teams and you know. Mm-hmm bridging gaps and and pairings and stuff like that. Yeah. If you can talk about it, I would love to learn just about how, how you are building your team. Uh, Like you, I spend a lot of time thinking about, think about the efficacy of teams. And, uh, and I don't mean that from like a, are they, are we, are we squeezing out the most amount of designs Mm -hmm. and, and work, right? Like, it's not about that. I think it's about is, are they, are they happy? Are they productive? do they have the environment that leads to fantastic creative work? Yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of the lens mm-hmm. that I love looking through. By the way, sorry, one quick caveat. You'll, you'll find this amusing. Buzzard is pinging me right now. And, uh, <laughs> tell, him, tell Mike Buzzard to go away. <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, man. Such a treat working with him. I think one, there, there is definitive complexity with building a global team. Like, yeah, I think it is both part of my job that I love and part of my job that I hate. I hate it in particular in COVID. Normally during the year, I don't, I, I love it and it's worth, it's worth it. And I just say that because I think there, there is an unavoidable tax of time zone differences. Yeah. So yeah. as soon yeah. as you have a team that is uh, in a meaningfully different time zone, if you cannot, there's, there's a few constraints that I'm always thinking about. One is it, Normally, you can get on a plane, so you can go build those relationships. You can spend time behind a whiteboard. Um, and those, those pay off huge dividends over time when you're not sitting mm-hmm. next to each other. and You, you have this mm-hmm. two- or three-hour window that you can actually spend over VC to talk with folks. And then, you know, from a pure, from a very tactical perspective, there's even, even if you could get on a plane and you could form those relationships how often do those teams have to work together to produce a cohesive product? Because no matter what, the more you do that, the worse like people kind of operate in a work-life balance sense. Because mm-hmm. like, like for me, I'm, I'm lucky I'm in a life situation where working skewed APAC hours is totally fine for me. It is not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, there, a lot of people have a, a lot of other life constraints that make that impossible uh, so how do you set teams up for success when the product requires that they work together I think that's where it gets really hard building a global team so I do think a lot about 
to the best of my ability, setting up autonomous teams that feel like they have this scope and ownership over something and they can run at that problem on their own. At a big company like Google, where it's also very engineering heavy, there is then a further complication of how do you set up a team to be strongly partnered with our product management and engineering partners and where are they? Mm. <laughs> Meaning, are, are your resources literally in the right spot to work with the right cross-functional partners to actually build a product? Because mm -hmm. if there's one thing I feel strongly about, it's that PM and Engine UX, and I actually broaden like marketing, prod ops, research, content strategy, like all, to the extent that I can get all of those folks that it's going to take to ship a great experience together, like that's, that's the golden egg that I'm always hunting for. Absolutely. Yeah. Is that something that has to be managed that, you know, you have to make, you know, you said you had to make sure kind of people are relative in the same sort of time zones to be able to work effectively together. I mean, it sounds like that in itself just that it would be a, a big job, like especially over the pandemic where I imagine people found themselves like working in cabins and, you know, lake houses and whatever, just to get out, you know, like needing a break from where they were. I don't, I don't know if you've seen the same thing, but I've just seen like the concept of, I don't know if the concept of someone having a home really for, for all like hundred percent people, I don't think that really exists for everyone anymore. You know, especially when you have like engine, you know, like high higher paid employees in the technology space that can afford to have like second or third homes, or you know, like how would we manage this long term? Because I don't know if people will ever like say that. Oh yeah, I live in Austin, or yeah, I live in the Bay Area. They they might say, oh, I live in the Bay Area, you know, six months out of the year, and I live in Singapore the other six months of the year. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an interesting yeah. uh, challenge, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm watching that myself. I think most of the relocation that I've seen has either been, you know, someone need someone moved home to be with their family. And so, you know, there there is some sporadicness to that in terms of, you know, maybe they were from Portugal, maybe they were from like insert country here. And so that, you know, that could have added complexity to the time zone dance that we're trying to do. I think there was a lot of people that, you know, definitely rented places, stayed places and such that were within the US, you know, I'm going to spend the summer in Tahoe. I'm going to spend the summer in Hawaii or something like that. And my tolerance for caring about those time zones when I have to deal with 12 hour time zones, like I could yeah. care less. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you want to be two hours off by all means. Yeah. That's, that's uh, so yeah. true. Right. I mean the, the, the Pacific time zone to Eastern time zone is, it seems like a, not a big deal at all when you have like 12 hour exactly. time zone. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. yeah, but I no, I'm very, I'm very curious with you, and I, I want to hear your thoughts too on the future of work, um, because I, I think you're right. I think that I, I actually feel like we did a pretty good job of proving how effective we all can be. Mm -hmm. Did, yeah. and and I am very curious about even the companies you know like automatic and and stuff that have been running virtually for a, for a long, long time. I think when you give people the opportunity to get together when it matters mm -hmm. and then you work more remote. Do we, is that actually the end game here? Like, do we end up in a See, more effective spot? I, I'm personally, that's, that's my, that's my bag right there is coming together for a purpose. And it's almost like spike time where you come together for a very specific reason. And it's, it's the whole convergent divergent model, like to a T. And I think that I personally like feel like I, really get a lot out of working that way. So like I, I'm on board with, with where you were going with that is coming together for a reason. I share the similar point of view. I mean, a few things that I've been thinking about is I feel almost rel relatively ignorant for the past year, lot eight years insisting that everyone we hire be hired from the Austin talent pool. You know, when we first started our business, I was really proud of that because, you know, I was excited, you know, we were all excited about, you know, making Austin a, a place for people that do user experience to have great careers. But now I, I feel like it's a little short-sighted because, I mean, we were just hiring from one bubble, which I imagine the Bay Area has been doing for many years as well. Um, the second thing is that I, I kind of feel like no matter what the businesses think right now, I kind of feel like it's, it, it's an employee's market, especially for senior roles, like lead level roles, principal level roles, director level roles. 
I, you know, I think it's an employee's market, right? And there's, there's, there's so many jobs, there's, there's such high competition for them. So I think the employers need to think about it the opposite way. They need to think about, well, what, what do we need to do to uh, attract and retain those, those people? I do think that there are certain, because I like to hire junior people, I do think that junior people need to be paired with mentors and leads and art directors and creative directors more frequently so that they can actually grow at the right pace. Because I do think if they're remote too much at the wrong time, then they their your growth could be stunted. But yeah, I agree. I think my prediction is that people kind of go into the office when there's a when they're lonely, when they need to get away from their kids to be productive, when they have a big workshop uh, or there's like a team event. And I kind of think that people have realized that the commute to work is just distracting, and that the expensive lunches are just costly. And that working in open air spaces is just distracting. I, I have slightly uh, like not an alternate opinion on that, but like a pe- some people that I know really miss the, the mindless commute because it gave them a chance to kind of like mentally disconnect. Like, uh, like uh, I forget who said it, but like uh, riding the train. Yeah. Right. And it was an opportunity to, re- to read a book or opportunity to, to listen to a podcast or something. Yeah. And now that they're always cooped up in the, in their apartment or, or home, they don't have that and to kind of miss that, them, the mindless ability to kind of be forced to do something different. So that's true. Uh, that can get really yeah, depressing. Yeah, in itself. I feel really bad for like people that are like single and live in a one, like a studio mm-hmm. or a one bedroom apartment where their where their desk is like three feet away from their bed. That's why I think the only counterpoints to, even though I think there is a really interesting model there, the hybrid model, but it's got to be really flexible. I think that's that's actually one of the benefits of, of being at a company as big as Google is like you literally hear like there are so many people that you're going to hear that complete spread of needs, mm-hmm. and so there there is a very hard problem to, to solve around accommodating everybody because there there definitely are there's the people that live in the studio, there's the people that have roommates. You know, at least in, in Silicon Valley, it's not uncommon that, that your roommate works at a competitive company. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And you two are yeah. going to sit there in some open space and both have VCs about what you're all doing. Like, oh, that's probably not a good scenario. Oh, totally. I didn't <laughs> even think about that. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I think there's a lot of really good reasons for people to want to be in an office. And we need to, we yeah. need to also build around them and respect them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think there's a single solve here, and it's going to ultimately end in, I think, a yeah. lot of employers accepting flexibility as their uh, operating model, mm-hmm. which is going to be hard for them. Yeah I, yeah, I think yeah, I think that's right. I think it's about flexibility and at a volunteer base to like kind of do what you need to do. I, I also have mixed opinions about, like, I, I think some people can work really well remotely, but others can't yet, right? Like, there's certain qualities of a person that, you know, like, that makes like an effective remote worker, you know, senior or junior, I think you have, I mean, I think that's something that you, you can learn, but like not everyone right out the gate is going to be a great teammate remotely. Yeah. 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 I, I've seen similar things and there's a, there's almost an interesting question. Like if you think, cause I, you know, obviously I do a lot of interviewing as I'm sure you all do. How do you evaluate that up front? <laughs> you know, you get some person who's got this amazing portfolio or something and, you know, how do you really get at, and, and they, and they come with a trailer of like, this is me, I'm amazing, but Hey, like, I'm not, I'm not coming in the office. How do you know? I don't know the answer to that question. Ethan on my team does more, does more of those, those inter- interviewing, but I've noticed a couple of trends, the people that we have been hiring that, have come from uh, in-house teams are a little bit more prepared to know how to like communicate with cross-functional teams in, in general. And then I think what's uh, surprising on the opposite side, the career switchers that are, you know, mat- mature in their years and maybe have had a different type of f- professional job, like in photography or in architecture, they, or maybe they're a freelancer, something like that. They kind of, you know, even though their design skill is, you know, on the lower end and growing they're they already have some of those mature behaviors, like, you know, like, like being a freelancer would teach someone. So I don't know. I think we've been lucky because we haven't, we haven't hired a whole, like most of the people that we've been hiring have started out as like, you know, freelancers. And so we can kind of 
work together and get to know them, I think it would be hard to be interviewing people that you don't know that you haven't worked with uh, remote. That, that would be, honestly, that would be pretty difficult uh, for me personally. I think we're, we're lucky that we just don't, we don't hire a lot, you know, like nowhere near mm-hmm. the, the amount of people that, you know, larger companies are hiring. We might hire like two or three people a year. So we take it really slow. Yeah. 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 It comes down to me when I hear all that. It's like, how can I trust somebody? How can I trust that they're going to be able to do what they say they're going to do? And that's a really hard one to kind of figure out. It's like, how, how do I trust you? Because like, one, it's like, how do I trust you to do what you're saying you're going to do? But also, how do I trust you to work efficiently with people that are in your squad or pod or whatever? But yeah, that's a... And, and my the, the, the next thought that up from that is like personality type. But that's even more weird to try to figure out in an interview is what's your personality type? No, I don't, I don't know. I think uh, for me, it's... it's uh, yeah, I, I agree. There, there is like an element of trust there. I think that... Um, but what, what I always look for is is the, can I trust you to come to me when you can't do it? Right. Like that's the more interesting. That's great. Are you willing to be vulnerable to say, yes, I need help or I'm stuck or something. Cause then it's all fine. But it's, you know, it's, it's when we, we spin off in our own into the ether that, uh, I think things go sideways. Yeah. Especially Mm, in a team scenario where other, other coworkers are relying on each other to do certain things, but they're not, their desks aren't together and they don't necessarily know exactly where someone is with their particular part of the work. You know, I just over communicating and be willing to be, you know, vulnerable like that. I, I think that's big. And honestly, I don't really, you know, you could ask people questions about their past and all that, but I think you don't really know until you work with someone, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, you, I, I just think in the, in the current environment, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions or things that we would have, attributed to success in one way or another that I think we all have to question. So I think not only is the, is the workforce changing, but we're also trying to change it and, you know, be more inclusive of, you know, I love hearing that, that, um, the work that you guys do to hire the job switchers and things like that, because I think that you can, you know, that's where you get the evolution of what design looks like in the future and what UX looks like. Um, it's not from repeating patterns. And, you know, it's sort of challenging that hire what you know mentality. And so, you know, I think that it's just a really interesting time to be, I think, leading in this space of what what does our industry look like five years from now? I think it's going to be fundamentally different. Yeah, that's what I was. I was kind of right following you step by step and everything you were just saying right off into the deep end here. It kind of makes you think because like, what does that mean? like to be a designer today because more and more, you know, there's always the, the back and forth of UX designer, product designer, this, that, and the other flavor you want to come up with. But like, is it somebody that's able to, you know, execute really, really well at a, at a really high, you know, high level? Is it somebody that's a really, you know, creative strategic thinker? Um, you know, the soft skills involved with being able to communicate and articulate really, really well. Like, what is it, what does it mean to be a designer today in, in your opinion? Cause I think that figures into a lot of stuff we've been talking about with the, the makeups of teams and stuff like that. So, cause I think that there's a lot of layers to that. There are. And I, I don't think, I don't think there's, I think you like all of those things you said. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the caveat is Yes. <laughs> Do we have to look for unicorns? I don't. I don't really buy into that. I think that everybody yeah. comes with the with the strength and a skill set. And the question is, is that right for what the business needs? Is that right for what the team needs? Because I, you know, at least for me, there's a lot of you know. Sometimes I I make hires to be change makers, where I see this this skill set that I think maybe is is going to kind of help shift the team, and it's a long game to play. Because you don't actually know how that change maker is going to come in. It's, you know, sometimes it can be good. Sometimes it can be catastrophic. But I think when you're trying to evolve a team, and these are good things to consider. And so when someone has, you know, an, let's say an outsized strategic mindset, you know, I think if, if, they're, if they're good at that and good at communicating that and sort of able to bring people on board, like that can have a tremendous shift across the entire team. 
and similarly, you know, like I think what, how, how people, you know, when I hire leaders that are really good at coaching through feedback and coaching through, you know, design crits and those kind of things, when you're in a room with them and everybody sees that, that caring nature and mm-hmm. the way they do that, like that starts to rub off on everybody. And that's, oh, yeah. you know, that's huge. That, that just has mm-hmm. this environmental impact that, you know, whenever, at least for me, back to sort of how I build teams, I'm always thinking about, you know, what are they bringing to the team and how is that going to impact and evolve the overall team? I think especially when you're making more senior hires, I think it's an important thing to consider. I'll, I'll ask you this after we after we're done recording, because I, I have some I have some more detailed questions for you that we can maybe nerd out on. But I, I, th- I think that's kind of fascinating. I'm, I'm really jealous of like the, the bigger, you know, companies uh, like Google, because I, I just fantasize that you all can hire whoever you want, right? Well, I want to, I want a crazy writer person, you know, like whatever, like, you know, you have the, I imagine that it's easier to get the budgets that you want to do that kind of get the kind of stuff that you need. I think all of us though, it's going to be really interesting to see what this, you know, the the younger designers that are in their first year or two, once the pandemic is done, t- to understand what their what their expectations are, because they would have spent the first two years of their career never working in a design studio. Mm. Mm. And yeah. so it could take a whole mm. year, for example, to change those habits. You know, so like, you know, th- I think that's going to be really interesting when when we're trying to hire the these a lot, a lot of these new crops of designers that you know don't really understand the benefits of work working in a, in a studio like we do. Yeah, I'm definitely happy to to, to yeah. talk offline about that stuff. So I, I will say, like, really quick, I think that uh, yes, it's true. Like, a function of scale usually allows you to have more uh, specialism. So you know, you can have somebody who's like they're they're just like they live and breathe motion design, you know, and you, and, and you can hire some of those, but. You know, the grass is, in fact, not that much greener. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> because the, the resources is all... I've never, I've never been at any company, worked on any UX team, where there wasn't the notion of being understaffed. So I, yeah. I think that no matter what, the ambitions you have to take on for work never equal the amount of resources you have to do it. Yeah. Um, mm. It's just a truism as far as I'm concerned. And uh, so you know it's uh, you're just moving the problem and just making it with larger numbers but i'm sure that you all suffer from the exact same stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm curious to like get back to you a little bit i mean what are what are some of the things that you're excited about for you in the future of your career you've done a lot right i mean you, uh, everyone can take a look at his linkedin profile and all that and you can see all the things that mike's done you know it seems like you have a lot of interest and a lot of things that you're in, you're into like what is it that you think is your what do, how do you want to design the rest of your career what do you, what do you what are you thinking I'm definitely of the age where I I feel like I have to work on things that I think are going to make the world a better place I you know I don't know if it's age or maturity or, or what it is but it's definitely important for me and and the two industries that I'm most passionate about right now and there's there's similarities one is definitely finance uh, I think that finance is is still you know, 10% through a disruption. I mm. do think that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the whole scale of that toward from, from digital commerce to actually being able to make payments to financial health. I think, how do we help educate people on, on how to understand their finances? How do we help them set, set them up to be more successful? And the system is not designed in their favor in a lot of cases. So I think that's, that's something I'm passionate about is how can I help mm-hmm. The other one is healthcare, and for me, it's um, less around like insurance healthcare. I, I don't know if that's where people's minds go when I when I say healthcare. When I think about it, and this is where it's similar to finance, at least my experience. And it could have been because I totally didn't take or pay any attention to the classes in school. <laughs> but it, at least my experience was that nobody really taught me the two of the most important operating systems. And one is how does your body work, mm-hmm. <laughs> like. You know, how old did I get before I figured out that uh, uh, one gram of fat is nine calories and one gram of protein or carbohydrates is four calories? Right. Like, I think I was in my 30s by the time I figured that out. And and that's just I kind was, of like, I was I was today years old when I found that out. Just now. <laughs> uh, and and we don't 
we don't teach people these fundamentals of like how to be healthy. What does what does healthy mean, mm. right? Totally. And, and then totally. and we subject people to these these this polar side of uh, oh here is a celebrity or somebody that literally gets paid for fitness and here's what they look like and it's not even remotely attainable for you know one percent of the population and and actually everybody's going to be like f that like okay so i think there's a big middle ground there in terms of education and understanding that um Mm -hmm. we need to do as a as a society and and i and that's where i see the similarity i think the exact same thing about money nobody taught me anything about money Mm -hmm. oh oh my gosh yes absolutely i totally agree with that one even more so than i agreed with the one previous (laughs) So those are the two spaces that I'm high, high, very attracted to. And, um, I, you know, I, I plan on, I don't plan on going anywhere. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think that I have a long career ahead of me. I feel pretty safe being the owner of my own company, but I, I, I'll admit too, like if, you know, this didn't work out when I was back in the, if I was interviewing, I, I, I I'm, I'm a little worried about that. I mean, I guess, I guess it may is maybe easier if you're, you know, someone, you know, people like us in their in their 40s or 50s are, you know, interviewing for manager and director level roles, which is great that most companies are thinking about leveling guides for all types of designers. But yeah, I mean, I am a little worried about that, too. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I don't know if you all feel this way, but there's no shortage of days when I, when I like, you know, I, like there's been a steady increase in stress and anxiety as I grow my organization and grow my career and grow those things. So, you know, every once in a while, I, I can't help but, you know, wow, can I just go back and be an IC? <laughs> and I'm not saying those aren't stressful jobs, but, um, you know, I do, I, over the last few months, I've been really zeroing in on the more senior you get, the more people you get to make unhappy with every decision you make. Mm. It, it's kind of dark and so I apologize mm. but you know I feel like you you can never make anybody happy and the decisions keep getting more uncomfortable and harder to make and for me that it's emotionally wearing <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah so I, you know from from that angle you know I I, I I think your grass is greener I'm like run a, run a design agency <laughs> I come work for you guys that sounds fun uh, I, I'm, and I'm sure I, it's very I struggle hard. with that too. You know, our, you know, we're a small company, but you know, we got close to 30 designers and I feel like it's, that's a, you know, I, it, it's hit a point for me where I was like, Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Like I felt pretty, pretty confident in my management abilities when the team was a certain size, but now I, I have a lot of imposter syndrome about, you know, you know, what to do na- next. You know, I, I think I, I lean on a lot of like coaches and stuff to figure that out. Sometimes I wish I could just like, approach it like a design problem, like no problem. Like I, you know, I know have the tools to know how to figure this out, but I think it is hard to do that stuff, especially in a pandemic, like when leaders are separated from other leaders. Right. And it's harder to have you, you know, like the conversations and, you know, to, to navigate the journey together. I don't, I don't know about you, Mike, but I, I find that hard let, let being separated from the rest of my, my, my team and leaders to be able to have these kind of conversations that help each other out, you know? Absolutely. No, I, I completely echo that. Um, I think it was funny when we were talking about sort of the future of work. And, and even though like I like these hybrid models, I do I do question the leadership role a little bit more. Like what is the right in and out of the office for them, um, myself included, where I, I think I do need more support from my peers to get me through these, these hard decisions and, and, and to get mentoring and to get coaching and to get all these things. And, and a lot, I get a lot of value from, from my peers in that way. And I would debate till I died with anybody that thinks you can get adequate, grow adequately over VC. Yeah. It's an, it's, it's an interesting, it's, it's been an interesting year to say the least. I mean, it's kind of, I'm just, I'm looking forward to the day when we, you know, things, you know, hopefully get a little, little bit better and back to normal. I feel like, I think, I feel like everyone look- just kind of like, Everyone's just exhausted right now too, and it's you know making space for you know you're, like you were talking about earlier, making space for people to be happy, healthy, so they can do good work. Right is kind of the big thing right now, right? Yeah, because you know people are realizing that they have lots of options and they can they can find a different place to be, 
uh, or they find that, you know, that they're using this moment to realize they want to do something like you've done in the past, like, you know, go in a different direction. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is, uh, you know, I think reflection is good yeah. no matter how it comes about. Well, Mike, uh, we appreciate you, uh, taking time to, to stop by and, and chat with us. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's been, uh, I've taken a lot away from me from this conversation. Yeah. Likewise. There's Thank some, you. There's some pretty, really appreciate it. pretty juicy quotes in there. We'll have to pull out. <laughs> How can people connect with you? Um, you know, I, I, uh, I, you know, I'm on Twitter third place pro, but I, I will admit I don't really engage with it. Uh, mm. I just find it, uh, you know, it's just too much for me. <laughs> it's overwhelming. <laughs> I've, uh, I, 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 I empathize with the design team over there. I, I don't know how to clean that product up. So I'm there, but I don't know that if you tried to reach out to me, I'd engage. Um, but LinkedIn is always a good place. Definitely on there. I think it's LinkedIn slash in slash M Holzer. And, you know, I'm on Instagram. Feel free to add me. I post mostly bike pics. Sweet. <laughs> bikes and ta- nice. bikes and tattoos. That's uh, nice. And my dogs. That's, that's kind of my. That sounds just like life. Tony. Yeah, sounds just like me almost. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks again, and and thank you for giving us ten. You know, going overtime, and we know you're busy, so we'll let you get back to your day. But um, look forward to talking to you again soon, Mike. Yeah, definitely. Anytime. Yeah. Uh, really great meeting with you guys. Thanks again. Sweet. Thanks, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see everyone next time. Ta-ta. Hustle is brought to you by Fun Size a digital service and product design agency that works with inspiring teams to uncover opportunities, evolve popular products, bring new businesses to market, and prepare for the future. Learn more at funsize.co. I'm Esteban Marquez, a product designer at Funsize. We'll catch you next time.